think we would just look to see how they improve by testing in a way that is replicable, that we can track that later and then seeing if that improvement actually leads to an outcome. What we're ultimately looking for here is, are they able to throw in a way that leads to a favorable pitch, whether that be velocity, movement, command? Do these translate into a change on the baseball field? Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. Today. We're joined by Mariners minor league pitching coach Ari Ronick. Ari pitched professionally for seven years, five of which were in the San Francisco Giants organization. After his playing career, Ari returned to school and has since graduated with a doctorate degree in physical therapy and a master's in business administration. Ari has owned a coaching business for the past 10 years, through which he works with baseball players of all ages and ability levels. On the show, Ari discusses how to tackle mobility challenges, applying skill acquisition techniques to coaching, and integrating biomechanics with pitch design. Here is Ari Ronick. Ari, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Definitely, and I'm I'm excited to get to pick your brain today. I think it's going to be a fun conversation, and uh, hopefully I can bring some high-level questions to your high-level knowledge, but for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better, can you give us a short snapshot of how and why you decided to get into coaching? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a few different reasons why, why I got into coaching, and, and hopefully, like most coaches, it all starts with a love for baseball. Um, I grew up in a family where I was the youngest of three boys, and it was a baseball household. We were playing all the time as a kid, and I, uh, I played through high school, through college, and, and as long as I could professionally probably longer than I should have really when it comes down to it. But, uh, but I've been in this game off and on my whole life and, and was really excited to come back to it as a coach. The second piece to that, when I was thinking about getting back into coaching this past year was memories as a player. So going back to my, my first short season of baseball, I had the pleasure of playing for a manager named Tom Treblehorn. And uh, just the impact that he was able to have on me during what was an impressionable time of my life inspired me and made me think as a, as a coach that what a rewarding experience that could be. And the, uh, the third piece, kind of the last thing and reason why I got into coaching is, is that it allows me to, to use two skill sets to, to see pitching through, um, through the lens of a player, someone who pitched, and, and as a physical therapist. Every day I get to I get to break down human movement. I get to watch how people throw. In physical therapy, our mission is to, to um, optimize movement to improve the human experience. And I, I just see this as an application, kind of an offshoot of that, is that I get to watch, analyze, nerd out on the pitching motion, um, work with my guys, give them exercises or, or throwing progressions based on that. Um, and I get to interface with them, get to know them well enough to, to understand what makes them tick and how I might be able to help them. So I find that to be a privilege and, and it's really rewarding getting back into it. 
No, I, I think that most of us, uh, the game grabs us, but I think it's the relationships that we build through it that we miss so much. And I, I think that most people go through a stage, or at least I think I did, and I think a lot of people, other people do as well, of where they get out of the game and then, then they realize that they miss that aspect of it. Like they miss the relationship, they miss being around the guys, they miss being in the clubhouse, they miss being in the locker room. And and that's that part grabs you. And then as a coach, I think we all need to remember that because, I mean, we all want to win. We're all competitors. We all want to make players better. We all want to uh, get rings in the process. But, man, how many guys do we have a chance to impact and how how often can we do that and, and how can we build a relationship with every single player? I think that's that's something that you've mentioned just a second ago, but it's also something that drives me every day. And a lot of our listeners are in the youth development area, and a, a lot of them have asked the question, you know, what do they need to be doing? And, you know, a lot of the th- different problems that we see and you get to see started whenever they're in that age. And so what do you see as far as problems in the youth setting? And what are some different things that we can start to fix to help them down the road? This is a, a question I think we could really start a conversation around, and I would love to hear what different coaches have to say about it. Um, to me, it's less often an issue of, of do they throw well enough or do they hit well enough, um, and more of an issue of, of how well do they move. Um, a lot of the kids coming up, they do play baseball, and they play baseball oftentimes year-round. And um, certainly sports specialization is a huge conversation right now that we talk about from an, an injury lens, um, how, how players that play year-round at a young age are at a, a heightened increased risk of injury. Um, but the other side of it is from an athletic base. And if, if a kid is playing baseball only, they're not exposed to a wide enough variety of movements to build a strong athletic foundation, uh, what we like to call a, they don't have good movement literacy. Um, and, and that's not something that they're going to be able to get out of this sport alone. So as coaches, um, this is a really common topic. And this is something that, that I think we struggle with and we struggle to know how to meet the needs of the kids that we coach. Um, a couple of years ago, I worked at a, a center for, for kids with developmental delay and came back out of it and noticed that when I was running camps, hey, I, I've got nine-year-old kids here that still can't skip. Um, how are they supposed to perform a, a complex movement like in the baseball swing or the baseball throw effectively if they can't perform basic athletic movements? Right. Um, and we see this at the professional level, that the best players oftentimes played a lot of sports when they were younger and were exposed to a lot of different types of movement. Um, so that's the issue, and that's kind of me on my soapbox. Um, unfortunately, the, it's not really working when we explain this to parents. So maybe we need to change our strategy and meet them where they're at. So if kids are coming in to, to see you as a coach, if, if you're coaching a team, if you work at an indoor facility um, and are seeing kids year-round, explain this to parents, explain this to kids that it will help them to play multiple sports. And at the same time, build into your practice some ways for them to, to work on some of the movements and skills that they won't get on the baseball diamond. So this could be starting with our ABCs, working in agility, balance, and coordination into your warm-ups or into your conditioning. Um, this is asking them to, to do movements that involve thinking and moving at the same time. Um, but we need to do a better job of, of incorporating some of these different types of athleticism into our sport 
to best help the kids that, that are growing up in it. I love hearing that from you. Let's also get into some uh, development and pitching development. And so let's just go ahead and start with the offseason. We're currently right in the middle of it. And so what does your pitching development look like? And kind of take us through your methodology. Uh, it's a really good question. And I think it's really going to vary depending on what the season looks like, uh, the workload of the players. But I'll, I'll take the perspective of, of someone that's maybe a, a high school, senior, college, professional player um, that's looking to improve during the offseason with their pitching. So the, the place that I'd begin with is, is reflecting on the previous season, sitting down with that player and discussing, hey, what went well? What didn't go so well? Um, what are our opportunities for improvement? And, and really making the player a big part of that individual development, a part of their, their improvement process. The next step for me is to then uh, find some, some objectives that, that, we can, that we can work from, some objective measures uh, that we can start with and actually track improvement with that player. So mm -hmm. they can see, Hey, I am getting better at something. I can see, Hey, maybe this isn't working and I need to shift that a little bit. So for me, I, I take that as a, as the same way that I would assess a patient as a physical therapist. And I'm going to start by looking at range of motion. I'm going to look at strength. I'm going to look at a quick movement screen. Um, and there are some good options out there that are available. One of them is called FMS. Um, there's another one called OnBaseU mm -hmm. that a lot of people find really helpful for the screening process. Um, but for me, that will look like, um, let's, let's look at some of the major joints of the body that, that contribute to the pitching motion. First one being the ankle, the, uh, the hips, the thoracic spine, the shoulder, the elbow. Take some basic measurements and, and use that to guide us in terms of like, Hey, what, what are our most obvious deficits here? We're not looking for slight changes or, or minor differences, but are there any low hanging fruits where we may, may be able to start from there and develop something um, that can really help the player improve? Same goes with the strength in the movement screen and then using that and, and looking at how they pitch. So if we can set a baseline pitching video at this point, take a look at, at how that is and compare it with these other aspects. A lot of this is obviously resource dependent, so it, it can be a really good time if you have access to biomechanical analysis is a really good thing to look at. Um, otherwise, getting, getting someone involved who, who has experience with assessments, that might mean a, uh, an athletic trainer through your school. It could be a strength conditioning coach. It could be a physical therapist. And so when you're running the screen, and this is something that, that I've, you know, I've done with the hitters, and it's, I'm on base U certified, and so I... Uh, we took them through the screen a couple of weeks ago, and you know, one thing that kept standing out is is a lot of the problems that they have aren't fixed overnight. And so we started to view it from a lens of, okay, so here's where the player is deficient, and here's our, our here are a couple of workarounds that we can use uh, in the meantime because the player may improve these and may they may never improve these, but here's something that we can optimize their movement based on how they move. And is there, is there something similar from the pitching side that you would do with that? Or would you just be patient and hopefully that whenever they're working on these uh, different mobility issues or, di or corrections, uh, that you hope that they improve over time? Yeah, I think we would just look to see how they improve by, by testing in a way that, that is replicable, that we can track that later. And then seeing if that improvement actually leads to, a, to, a, to an outcome, right? Okay, so. sure. Um, that what we're ultimately looking for here is, is are they able to 
are they able to to throw in a way that that leads to a favorable pitch, whether that be velocity, movement, command, whatever it happens to be? Do do these translate into a change on the baseball field? Perfect. I, I like that, and you know that that's something that you you uh, learn a screen and you're like, oh, I'm going to fix all of this stuff and, and they're going to be great movers and then it affects other ones and then you're like, oh, man, I never may fix all of these. But there's always some different ways that people move based on how they move and there's reasons why. And that's that's definitely given me an insight into uh, a lot of the why of why players decide to move uh, different ways. And it's really interesting. And and so whenever you, you're going through these screens, uh, what are some different common problems that you see and then I mean, we can talk about the screens or pitching mechanics in general or just whatever, but what are some different common problems that you see? And then a, a thing that, that I love to ask is how do we fix them? Because I, I think it, we, can, we can all notice some different things that are wrong, but I think the money's made where uh, we can fix these problems. So what are some different problems that you see with kids or players and how do we fix these? Uh, really good question. Um, and I, I think so some common areas where, where I'll see some, some issues that, that relate to, to pitching, um, to pitching success or to, to that velocity piece that we've talked about a little bit, um, might be, might be range of motion through the thoracic spine. So it's, it's, um, being able to have extension and rotation through the T spine. It might be hamstring length, the blocking leg. Um, are they actually able to, to use that leg optimally to, to, stop their energy to send an impulsive energy kind of up through the body when they block. Mm -hmm. And so if it's something that comes down to mobility or, or range of motion like that, um, a good kind of way of thinking about it is that we can strengthen to lengthen. Um, so by, by lifting, by lifting weights and by working through a, a whole range of motion, particularly through the, the negative or, or eccentric portion of lifting, we actually build, do build length to, to muscle fibers. We can build length that way rather than, than sitting with a static stretch. So mm -hmm. a good place to start is always with, with using strengthening either to gain length or, or to, to add the muscle that you might need to, to even like get to that position as a player. I like that. And that, that's really good. And so let's go ahead and let's talk about the mechanic side. And, you know, you mentioned video earlier, or is there anything in particular that we should be looking for or, or what, we all have biases. So what are some of the different things that you look for first or what pops out whenever you start to look at video? Right. So yeah, video is something that I still use in every bullpen with pitchers, whether it's to, to look at it myself or, or just to have it available to show the pitcher if they want to see anything that they're doing. The way that I like to approach it is to start with a, a pretty broad lens um, and, and similar to what we talked about with the assessment. To, to look for anything that is like that really jumps off the screen at you. And, and by starting with that, so we'll look at kind of sequencing to begin with, do things move from the feet up, um, look at timing, looking for any, any like way off pieces of timing that we might be able to identify from a pitching video where I think we get into trouble sometimes as coaches is that we get a little bit too concerned about the aesthetics of the pitching video and, and want everyone to look like a major league pitcher or want them to be smooth. But really what matters is that that pitching motion leads to a favorable outcome. So, so using it within that context. Um, so after looking at, at it from that broad lens, then it is a good time. Break down the lower half, break down the, the trunk and, and the torso and look for separation, whatever, whatever you want to look for in there. Look at the, how the, uh, the arm action works. Mm -hmm. um, 
but but try to be broad and, and try to look for for things that really jump off the screen at you rather than nitpicking little things. And I think in the same way that you said that can be a challenge with on base you and with with a movement screen, the same issue is what I find with with pitching videos is we just want to make everything so perfect that we lose track that the body is pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. It's a complex movement, and players players are going to move in the way that they most efficiently can oftentimes. So we we need to. We need to keep it in context. No, I like that. And I I think for the player, the simpler that we can make things, the better. And you also mentioned that uh, low-hanging fruit or their limitations. And I mean, just do where do you start? Because that's that's really, if they have several different ones, do you start with lower body or arm action? Do you start with the beginning of their motion or the end? I mean, there's a lot of different approaches behind this, but... Whenever you're looking at, you say low hanging fruit, you know what are what are some different categories that you would put in first? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, and and this is definitely where we need to be discerning as coaches. I I would start with the lower half and the trunk, and in in those in those spots, um, what we often see is that maybe a change to their direction, or a change to to the way that they that they stride out, um, the way that they rotate might affect something farther up the chain. So I think if you start earlier in the chain, you, you may find that some of those other things that you might identify in, in the throwing arm or um, in the upper half might actually benefit just, just from the change of the lower half. Okay, that makes sense. And that, that's something that I, I think it's, again, we can point to a lot of different issues that we see, but in, uh, there are some that if you do them in sequence, then they will uh, fix the things down the road. And so... I love getting to hear your process behind that. And another thing that that's been really big lately, and I think with good warrant is uh, the individual development within the team setting. And we want to help each of our players get better rather than just kind of throwing them at a one size fits all program. And so what's, what's your advice on how we can prioritize individual development with, you know, between 20 and 50 players in a program? Yeah, this is certainly a major challenge, um, especially at those high school levels where, where you have coaches that, that have a full-time job and, and they're doing this and they're maybe, as he said, are overseeing 20, 30 players um, at a time. So what I know, uh, the lens that I'm coming from in professional baseball, I can take you through my process and then just tell you how I would approach it as a high school or a college coach. But where I begin with is is every team does need to have overall goals. And, and for us, those are brought down from the organization and those are discussed daily with the team, how, how we're progressing with those, where we have opportunities for improvement. Um, but within that, I do need to have an individual plan for every player. So I keep a booklet. Um, it's something that I write in each time after my pitchers throw, hey, this is something that I saw today. This might be something we can work on um, before their next outing, or here's an opportunity for farther down the road. So keeping something like that, your individual plan for each of your players, this can also be guided by the assessments that we talked about earlier. So if you're running a high school program and you have 30 pitchers and two coaches to oversee them, you're likely going to find some commonalities in terms of what their deficits are and what their plan for improvement is. So that's a good opportunity to group players. And rather than having 30 individuals, you have five or six groups that have similar goals and to empower those players uh, to be accountable, to hold each other accountable, 
um, as they're going through it. And, and they may have a specific process that, that you can oversee with each of them. Oh, that's really good. And, and I, anytime that we can bucket players into like groups, I, I, I really like that aspect because it also gets them talking between each other and, Hey, what are you feeling? And, and whether it may or may not be the same thing, sometimes, you know, we, as coaches, we speak above players, if that makes sense. And we are explaining things that may be too complex. And then a player goes, Hey, just do this. And they're like, Oh, coach, why didn't you just say that? That's perfect. I'm like, Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, absolutely. So putting, putting it in context for the player, it's a really important piece. And, and we're in a day right now where players are hungry for information mm-hmm. and, and then they have the same access to information that we do as coaches. So it's important that we not only understand it, but that we can, we can explain it in a way that that's clear to them and that they can gain knowledge about their own pitching. They're hungry for info. Definitely. I love that. And I love that about this generation is there. They're not afraid to, to dive in. They probably want to understand the why behind it before they dive in. But once they do, I, I think once we give them those objectives and those goals, then they're, they understand what to do and they, they go full in on it. But all right, I, I love that. And, and I think that, that that's fantastic. But you know, another thing that I really find interesting is teaching players new pitches. And so I, we see videos online of, you know, with the Edgertronic cameras setting up behind. And uh, I think with Rapsodo, you can do uh, spin efficiency. And, and that's a really cool thing to get to see what your pitches are actually doing and how efficient they are. So go through your process on how you teach a new pitch to a player and how you tell them why. Because they, I'm sure that they everybody thinks that their curveball is just the best curveball on the planet. And they're like, oh, I love my curveball. And then if you tell them that it sucks, you're, they're like, oh, okay, well, why, right? But how do you how do you go through approaching teaching uh, teaching a new pitch to different players? Uh, that's a great question. I think it can it could even go to uh, to modifying a pitch shape as well that might benefit the players. So um, I think it's our job as coaches to set up an environment that allows players to learn independently. So however we however we're able to uh, to set up the positioning of everything, it should really promote implicit learning so okay. that the, the player is getting it within themselves rather than us just telling them what to do. So what that does need to start with is to sit down and have a conversation and maybe to explain, Hey, if we're trying to create this pitch, this is how we, we create that shape. This is the spin we need to see. This is the velocity that we need to see from this to have that action. And then to go from there and, and really like as best we can almost remove ourselves from the feedback loop. So I spend very little time talking to pitchers while they're throwing their bullpens. And that's where that the technology can really come in and help using Rapsoda. They're able to see, did I do it or didn't I? And it's that simple as they're trying to figure it out. Learning a pitch is also a time as coaches that we can really use our, our principles of motor learning, which, mm-hmm. you know, just a fancy word for something that I think a lot of us do a good job of already, but um, starting in a, in a closed environment and, and maybe, teaching them to pitch with teaching them a new pitch with some constraints to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then from there, slowly starting to, to open up that environment and to also fade our feedback. So if we're telling someone initially, Hey, this is the change we need to see from, from this pitch, or we're showing them with the Rapsodo on, on the iPad. Um, we actually want to remove that and, and fade it. So either tell them less frequently, either like say they throw three or four bad ones in a row, then we come in with an adjustment. Mm-hmm. So that's delaying it. The other piece of that is actually just providing less feedback altogether. Um, so little by little, less and less feedback, 
more open environment um, and moving towards more variable practice as they go. And I found some success with that. So without the, without the technology to, to be a part of this process, um, we do have to be a little bit more, a greater part of the, the experience and, and give them our feedback with what we're seeing. Um, but ultimately, uh, it just goes back to, to doing what we can to allow the player to, to self-organize and to figure these things out on their own. I love that. And I always use the term, if, if they can feel it too, then they can fix it. And I think we're all into trying to eliminate our jobs as much as we can. And I, I know that sounds counterintuitive because we want to help the players so bad, but you can't go out to the mound with them. I mean, and they're in a tough situation and they've got to throw this pitch that they're not exactly comfortable with for a strike. I mean, that, and that's tough and that they have to go back to, again, self-reflection and self-reliance and, and to be able to do that. And another thing while we're talking about in-season stuff is uh, pre- and post-throwing routines. And uh, do you guys individualize that? Do you recommend different things? And if you don't mind, just kind of give us a, a list of things that for you know our high school coaches who would like to do something similar, what are, what are some different things and some different modalities that you do? Uh, good question. We And we do individualize it to an extent. Um, I think you know, everything starts with a dynamic warm-up, just infusing the tissues with blood, um, getting them going, working them through through a, a, a range of motion. This is an area where where I do use my, my PT skill set a little bit and actually get hands-on with some of my players. Uh, what we see with a lot of guys at the, at the professional level that can throw the baseball 95 miles an hour is that they have quite a bit of flexibility that they're able to work through, particularly at the shoulder joint. So, um, what I what I tend to do with them is kind of some hands-on resistance work to to work on the underlying stability and strength to support that flexibility that they have, um, and that can be with with something we call PNF work, um, kind of providing resistance in different directions and asking them to stabilize through it. Uh, but we can also replicate this and, and do some similar things with with a body blade is a good thing to use. Um, J bands I've found to be really helpful. Um, and with the younger players, I'd say, including the high school players, building in things like bear crawls, uh, like inchworms, different, different movements that aren't just stand and perform a static stretch. Let, let's keep it dynamic. In the post-throwing, to me, it really varies. So if you have a reliever or you have a starting pitcher who's trying to build up workload, that would be a good time to perform some rotator cuff exercises to, to help them gain some more, um, some more durability as they're throwing, um, some more before they fatigue, but for other throwers, so say we have a starting pitcher and they come out and they, they play catch, they throw 30 pitches in the bullpen, they throw hundred pitches in the game and eight between innings. They are neurologically fatigued. The rotator cuff is fatigued after they're done throwing They're They're not going to get as much out of uh, some extra exercise as somebody who, who has a shortened workload. So I think the best thing to do at that time is actually just jumpstart that recovery process and allow them to rest. Perfect. And for, uh, I know that, that a big, that a big thing that a big push now is workload management. And, you know, it, it used to be pitch counts and it's, it's all individualized and it's all dependent on the player. And uh, again, a lot of our listeners are, wondering how we can get better at just understanding what the player needs to do to make sure that they're ready for their next start or if it's a reliever that they're ready for the next time that they throw and 
Do you just have, do you have any suggestions on that? Because it's, it's not something that I know Modus is trying to track that stuff. And I think that that's a, it's a great start, but there's really not a template that you can just put on that just says, Hey, this is exactly what we're going to do based on this, because it's, it's just, it, again, you're a PT, so you understand how complex the body is, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can make that easier for coaches. Yeah. If we could come out with something more consistent, that would be fantastic. Um, but what coaches can do is be gradual, build up slow, be, be aware of uh, Modus does a lot of work on acute to chronic workloads. And so without understanding everything and tracking every single throw with an M sleeve or whatever we were able to do, the answer for us is, Hey, let's build up slow. If they threw, if they threw 80 pitches in today's game, let's not jump that to 120 pitches next game. Perfect. I love that. And so what is, uh, what's something that you are, have learned lately? I, I think that you've done a great job of taking us through some different things that, that we do on the pitching side, but I know that you're, you're a, a learner and I know that you are, uh, in always into looking into something that is new or just something that you can see from a different lens, but what is something that you're currently learning? Um, this past season, I've spent a lot of time learning about pitch, pitch characteristics and how that can relate to, uh, to in-game strategy. And I'm, I'm fortunate to, to work in an organization with a lot of good minds in this area. Um, my pitching coordinator, the person I, I speak with most often is a guy named Max Wiener. Mm-hmm. And he has an incredible and in-depth knowledge of, of spin physics, um, of pitch shapes, and also of in-game strategy and how we can use uh, what a pitcher's repertoire, what their strengths are um, to be successful in the game. So this is something that, that I really ha- did not have much of an understanding as a pitcher and the data has really shed a lot of light on. So, you know, back when I was pitching, if we, we had a pitcher that, that missed up in the zone or so we thought frequently um, and got out that way, we thought it was kind of due to, to luck. And today what I might see is, Hey, this guy's got a, a lower than average release height, maybe a, a five foot six release height mm-hmm. spins the ball at, at higher than major league average RPMs and is able to ride the ball up in the zone and and make it really difficult for hitters to match that plane. Um, So it's given us a lot of answers to different things and and it's something that players um, really respond to. Well, Hey, this is what you have and this is how we think it can be most successful and play the best at the major league level. I like that. And you're, so you're essentially, you're taking a player's strengths and making them uh, known to the player. So they may or may not know, or they may think it's luck, but now they understand and have an objective behind exactly what they're trying to do. Very true. Yep. So it's, it's, it's showing them what they do well and where they'll be successful. And I think this is something that players, they kind of have a feel for, and they know Mm -hmm. a little bit, but really when, when the, when the, um, overarching, strategy has always been throw the ball down in the zone or stay low in a way. Don't mess up. Only go up with two strikes. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard for players to break that pattern. So as coaches, if we can come in and say, well, not really, this is actually where we see you being successful. It it frees them up to pitch in a new way. So Ari, I I have a question about, you know, the future of pitching development. And I, I think we've come a long way in the, you know, the last maybe 10 years. I mean, you look back to the early 2000s and how different it is now. And so what do you think in the future? You know, where do we go from here and how can we improve? That's a really good question, Jonathan. And uh, to me, it's how we integrate the information that we already have. 
Um, we are collecting great information today. We have a lot of info on pitch design, on biomechanics, um, but we tend to think of pitching in silos, almost like these are separate categories. We have our, our biomechanics component, we have our pitch design component, um, and the two are truly interwoven. So if I'm thinking about a, a new pitch to create for someone, a lot of the time what, what we'll find with coaches is that we're, we're thinking, one, maybe what arm angle do they throw from? Uh, and two, what's the rest of their arsenal look like? So what new pitch might tunnel well with, with the pitches that they already throw? So if we have a pitcher that, say, throws um, from a high arm angle who spins the fastball uh, straight backwards and rides it well, um, the logical pitch to throw off that might be a, a curveball that spins in the opposite direction with a lot of negative-induced vertical break. Um, and we see a lot of uh, uh, videos that are great that show this um, that might, might show the hand and how the fingers in part spin on the baseball to create movement. So rather than just putting the video on hand, um, after a couple of bullpens, I think it's actually a really helpful thing for us to, to zoom out a little bit okay. and to look at the sequencing of the upper body, to look at the sequencing of the trunk and see, hey, is this pitcher able to safely move through that position? Are they going to be able to, to create top spin on a pitch or side spin on a pitch? Um, or will they be more effective with, with a gyroscopic type spin? Do they need to recruit too much movement from one segment of their body in order to get there such that it's unsafe for them to throw that pitch? So a lot of different ways to think about it, but I think it goes back to using the information that we already have and, and kind of synthesizing it to better understand how can, we, how can we progress these pitchers safely and how can we progress them effectively. I like that. And so we're talking about some different things that you do to individualize uh, different training and you're talking about pitch characteristics and, and I love all of that. And, and so let's get down into some different things that you do in training or in practices or pregame that your players love. So let's say that you show up to the field tomorrow and you tell your pitch, your, your pitchers that, Hey, we're doing this today, guys, or you tell one that you're doing this today and they just, they love it. So what, what would that thing be? Um, always really from, from the young kids on up into professional baseball, it's creating games and competitions out, out of everything. Um, so something that, that I threw out this year with my pitchers is I brought out about five hacky sacks, um, halfway through the season and they loved it. Um, they, they competed with it. It turned into a game. They were kicking it between innings and, and to them, I mean, we went through probably seven or eight of them to them. That's, that's fun. And to me, that's, that's me seeing someone working on hip mobility. Um, oh, so like everybody gets what they want, but yeah, with, with younger kids, just, just keeping it a game, making it fun. No, I, anything that we can make a, a competition. I have, I have done this. Let's see, you're around guest 150 and I have yet to hear the hacky sack reference and to use that and to couple that with hip mobility. That's really good. Yeah. It's a great way to work on hip internal and external rotation. Perfect. Perfect. We'll have to, I have to go to Amazon and pick up a few. And so uh, another thing that is somewhat, uh, I, I don't know if it's controversial anymore, but it, it was something that was a, a heavily debated topic maybe 10 years ago and probably still today in some different circles. And that's the, the, the thoughts of long toss and weighted balls. So you're a physical therapist and you understand some of the things that just a regular coach doesn't because you understand how the body moves. You understand what stresses are put where, and you understand all kinds of different muscles, joints, tendons, everything, right? So what are your thoughts on uh, long toss and, and weighted balls? 
Great question. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Something that's polarizing that the, the research is, is very mixed on. To me, they're a tool. They're, there's something that if we used correctly, if implemented correctly and in the right way can be super valuable for pitchers. Um, one of the underlying principles in physical therapy is something called physical stress theory. And all that really means is that demands imposed on the body um, lead to adaptation. So when we, when we lift a weight, when we do something that, that overloads our system, we respond by getting stronger. Um, and that's not just, that's not just with muscles. Uh, when we, when we do these types of activities, we also strengthen tendons, we strengthen ligaments, we strengthen connective tissue, cartilage, bones, really responses from everything. And I, I see that, uh, that weighted balls and long toss can, can work in a similar way that if we apply an overload in a strategic way, that can be valuable um, and actually protective against injury for some players. The other, the other side to it that I think is, is really helpful. Um, so if we were to kind of draw a parallel um, and take, take teaching someone how to do a, a deadlift or a, a, a power clean, mm-hmm. when they are feeling what it's like to do that motion without any weight, it's actually pretty challenging for them to, to feel what their body's doing. And the moment that we throw, say, a kettlebell in their hands to work on a deadlift, their body goes into kind of protect mode and has to figure out how to move, how to move that kettlebell without hurting itself, how to do it in its most, in its most efficient way, something that we would call self-organization. So the same thing occurs if I throw a nine-ounce baseball in someone's hand instead of a five-ounce baseball and ask them to, to go through a throwing drill that works on arm action is it is a, a new type of feedback for that player. Um, it's something new to their system that actually leads to, to some changes that they may not otherwise have with a five ounce ball. So we can teach some new movement patterns. Okay. Um, similarly with long toss, um, it's a way for their body to self-organize in that if they're throwing a ball as far as they can and, and they see that one of them travels 250 feet and the next one goes 20 feet farther maybe they feel something in their body where they sync up better in that motion. So I think that there's a, there's a use for all of them. If they're all done correctly, each of them are a, a beneficial tool for baseball players. Now that would make a lot of sense. And so give us a picture of kind of your coaching style. And if we, if we came to, to a game or a training session where you were working with your, your staff, what would be three things that you think that we would notice? Um, really good question. Um, so a couple things, first thing, something that, that's maybe a little different than you'd see normally is, uh, is the way that, that I throw with my pitchers. So I, I do, I play catch with someone pretty much every day. I attempt a long toss with them and don't get it even halfway to them sometimes. Um, but as a, as a player, I threw, I threw from, I threw overhand for, for the first two years of my professional career, and then actually dropped down to sidearm and submarine huh. for a good portion of my career. So. So I actually try to pretty much mirror what they're doing. So mm-hmm. if they're working on a, a slider with, with a certain spin at the end of their throwing, I'm trying to do the same thing. We're spitballing together. We're both messing with different grips. We're both trying different things. Mm-hmm. Um, a second thing you might see is that at, at the beginning of the day, we'll, we'll reflect and talk and I'll, I'll address the group as a whole um, about last night's game or, or something, a, a lesson, something that we're, we're trying to learn that day. Beyond that, most of my day is spent listening and asking questions. I, I really do not speak that much, and that includes the bullpen time. Um, that includes during BP. I'm walking around and asking questions 
trying to figure out how my guys are doing, what they need from me, um, and where I can go with that. And and one more thing, you know, I'll add is that I, I coach at a level where we have a lot of players that have only been in the United States for, for a year or so. A lot of guys from the Dominican Republic or Venezuela um, who are still in the process of learning English and they're not there yet. And so when I'm speaking to the group, I try to translate that to them after. When I'm talking to those players, they speak to me in English and I only speak to them in Spanish. That's awesome. And I do this for a couple of, yeah, a couple of different reasons, really. Number one is, is uh, if I'm expecting them to, to take a risk and to, to potentially say something that, that they didn't mean to say and feel stupid about it, I need to be willing to do the same thing and to show them that, hey, it, it's okay to make mistakes. That's fine. My Spanish is not perfect either, but we got to take risks to, to improve at this. Mm-hmm. That second piece is just to respect the challenges that they're going through as players coming to a new country with a language that's foreign and, and trying to trying to really acclimate to that. It's something that that I think is really important that as coaches that we we continue to work on for our players. No doubt. I mean, it, and you know, coming from another country, speaking a, a, an entire, entirely different language, that breaks down a lot of barriers. Whenever you're willing to uh, be vulnerable with them, and I, I can only imagine how how much respect that that would give to them. That's the hope. Yeah, is that is that they they. Um, at least to feel that you that you're doing your best to help them through it and that you know what they're going through even if you've never experienced it that you you at least respect that it's something different i love that and i I think that's great advice and you know the last thing that that i'd like for you to leave our listeners with is some of your favorite books and resources and you know what has changed your coaching career and and what what uh what would you recommend that we go out and get uh, there's a lot of great resources. We're in a time right now where there's so much readily available information. Um, and that's amazing for us all. It's also a huge challenge to be discerning of, of what we take with us and what we choose to trust. Um, so the, the baseball and the kind of movement resources that, that I've used in the past um, and that I continue to use, I, I, I choose them based on their process, really. Um, uh, Eric Cressy puts out some very good content. That on movement particularly that I think it is based in a lot of um, good thought processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, driveline baseball, I, I admire their process. They try to be data driven. Um, everything that they do has a reason, whether whether everyone agrees with it or not. They are they are trying to push push forward our industry in a way that I think is is good and helpful. So I've read their book Hacking the Kinetic Chain, um, and I do use some of their resources. Outside of baseball, a book that I recently read is called Range. Um, and I think that is a, yeah, isn't it a great book for, great book for really anyone to read in the sports world? Right. So the idea is, um, is that it shows some of the benefits of, of late specialization, not only in sports, but in other parts of life and explained um, some success stories of, of of exposure to different things throughout our lives. So a lot of the, the, the reason why um, late specialization is a good thing for athletes as well. Mm-hmm. And one last book, just kind of going back to an appreciation for baseball. If you haven't read the book, The Glory of Their Times, you'll never find a better baseball book. It's a, a collection of stories, um, firsthand accounts from players between 1890 and 1920 and the experiences that they had in professional baseball. It's a great read. 
I'll have to pick that one up. I, I don't think I've ever read that one. That one's really interesting. And Ari, I man, I, you've given us so much great information today. And I mean, and a lot of it very high level, very heavy at times, which was fantastic. And I loved every minute of it. You have challenged a lot of the, the different things that, or at least ways that I've been thinking about some different things and, and given me a different perspective. And, and I love that about it. And if our listeners would like to get in touch with you to maybe ask you any questions or if, if they just have any questions for you in general, what would be the best way to do so? Uh, through email would be great. Okay. Um, it's usually the best way to get a hold of me. And my email address is uh, Ronick Baseball. It's spelled R O N I C K baseball at gmail.com. Okay. All right. Well, I will open up the mic for you. And is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with before you go? No, thank you. Please, please drop me a line. Let me know. Uh, let me know if you have any questions, any comments. I'd love to start a conversation around any of this. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.